Hildy is a body, chain-smoking, 70-something former journalist who lives on the Upper West Side in an apartment that has a portal back to 1973. Time travel has rules, though, and Hildy breaks them by traveling back with slacker healthcare aide Trista. Now, both women will have to come to terms with their pasts before they lose their chance at having a future. From Ahoy Comics comes Elisa Quitney's Guilt, that's G-I-L-T, a comic book that's Sex in the City meets The Golden Girls by way of The Twilight Zone. Grab a copy today from your local comic shop or your local bookshop, or you can get one by visiting alisaquitney.com guilt, that's G-I-L-T, or of course you can get one from the big online retailers, and I've put a link in the show notes to make the whole process easier for you. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Welcome back to Elder Sign a weird fiction podcast by Clay Temple Media. I'm Brandon Buda. And I'm Glenn McDormand. This episode, we are talking about the story by James Tiptree Jr. that is called Love is the Plan, the Plan is Death, which was originally published in 1973. This episode was commissioned by one of our really awesome, really generous Patreon supporters, uh, along with four other stories. We've already done Angela Carter's The Lady of the House of Love, Margaret Atwood's Lucis Naturae, and two episodes on Karen Russell's Reeling for the Empire. Those have all been super awesome. This story's pretty fun, too. And of course, we're still going to have one more to go after that. And I just want to say thank you so much for this commission. The stories have been fantastic to read, the stories that we would not have gotten to otherwise. And of course, commissions are a huge part of how we stay on the air, and we really appreciate the generosity. Yeah, we really do. And yeah. I echo your praise of these stories, Glenn. This has been a lot of fun. This story is kind of the outlier, I think, of the ones we've covered so far. It's it's uh, a science fiction story in a lot of ways, but really it's almost a, a fable in others, and it's uh, very strange, and maybe the main characters are insects or aliens. I don't know. We all have a lot to talk about. <laughs> There's a lot going on here. Uh, and I'm excited to, to I don't know, comment on the way I felt at times during the story and then what the story's what's going on here. So let's just get right into it. Right. Before we start the recap, one thing that we, we should say is that James Tiptree Jr. is not the real name of this author. This is a pen name. So the author's real name is Alice Sheldon. And the reasons why she used a male pen name may actually be at least a little bit relevant to some of the themes in this story. So that may be something that comes up in the discussion, but uh, we'll probably be alternating between, uh, in a rather sloppy way, I imagine, between calling the author Tiptree and Sheldon here. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. All right. So then the next thing to say is that this story is not written in standard written English. And In fact, I'm just going to read the first page of this story to you so that if you've not read this story along with us, you can have a taste of what the story is like. Remembering. Do you hear, my little red? Hold me softly. The cold grows. I remember. I am hugely black and hopeful. I bounce on six legs along the mountains in the new warm. 
Sing the changer, sing the stranger. Will the changes change forever? All my hums have words now. Another change. Eagerly, I bound on, sunward, following the tiny thrill in the air. The forests have been shrinking again. Then I see. It is me. Me, myself. Magadit. I have grown bigger, more in the winter cold. I astonish myself. Magadit the small. Excitement, enticement, shrilling from the sun side of the world. I come. The sun is changing again, too. Sun is walking in the night. Sun is walking back to summer in the warming of the light. Warm is me, Magadit, myself. Forget the bad time winter. Memory quakes me. The old one. I stop. Pluck up a tree. So much I wanted to ask the old one. No time. Cold. Tree goes end over end down cliff. I watch the fat climbers tumble out. Not hungry. The old one warned me of the cold. I didn't believe him. I move on. Grieving. Old one told you. The cold. The cold will hold you. Chill cold. Kill cold. In the cold. I killed you. But it's warm now. All different. I mogadied again. I bound over a hill and see my brother Frim. So, yeah, immediately, right, you realize that <laughs> you have no idea what is going on, no idea what these words are for. And a huge part of the fun of the story is in figuring these things out, right, in cracking the code, making inferences to pick up on what is actually happening here. And in doing the recap here, I'm going to ruin that fun, mostly anyway, because I'm just going to recap the story as I understand it now that I have read it several times. But we are, of course, going to have to talk about the language of this story in the discussion section. And so let me just say up front here that this is a monster story, and it is a monster story told by the monster whose name, is, as we've just encountered, is Magadit. And Magadit also doesn't know what is going on in this world, actually. He doesn't know who or really even what he is or why he behaves the way that he does. And so he is strange to us as readers, but he is also at the same time kind of the audience surrogate, right? He's the uh, fantasy character who, you know, for some reason, knows as little about this fantasy world as we the readers do. And it's a very clever and a very interesting choice. I'm going to be honest here. I read the first two pages of this story in a moment of, you know, mild stress and just bounced right off of it. So I took my uh, car to the mechanics to get the oil changed at like an 8 a.m. appointment and read the vast majority of this story in the waiting room at the mechanics in a half a state in a half awake state. And it just worked so much better for me <laughs> just because of the the kind of surrealist nature of this language. And when you read this story, the language feels very harsh and it almost imitates like how the, the Far Side cartoon by Gary Laws by Gary Larson would have cavemen speak. And so what we're left with is this real sense of a primitive type of being. We know it's not human, but it's still full of emotion, as we'll see. And we kind of even see that in some of the language choices in the in the page that you read. And you know, Mokadit doesn't have a huge vocabulary. But here's the thing, all of this really ends up working in favor of the story in really surprising ways. Tiptree's language is very controlled, and this story works because of the language and style choices uh, in, in the telling of the story that Tiptree makes. In, in other words, the choices, the choices of Tiptree serves everything in the story. And after having read it, I can't imagine the story be told in 
any different way. And those language and style choices are what make this story. So what I'm saying is if, if you listen to this podcast, if you haven't read it and you want to read this story, you're interested in it uh, and you bounce off, that's okay. But just hang in there because I think the story has a lot to say and the way it says it really matters. Yeah, just just go get an oil change. I think that's what you're that's what you're suggesting. <laughs> you need one anyway. You know you need an oil change. <laughs> no, it's true though. I mean, I experience this a lot with almost everything that we read. I do my reading for the all the podcasting that we do is always something I'm doing at the end of my day. And it's often hard, Not, nothing to do even with the style of writing or the quality of what we're reading. It can often be hard for me to pay attention to the first few pages of a story. I'm frequently still in my mind, you know, doing stuff that I've been doing throughout the day, thinking about uh, dishes and, and, and diapers and, you know, meals for my kid and stuff like that. And it can be really hard to turn that off. But then, yeah, when the story's not written in understandable English, it can, can take many <laughs> times to get through. But I, this affected me actually way less on this story than it did uh, when we did the first chapter of Alan Moore's Voice of the Fire, where uh, I think we talked a lot actually about, uh, about that as a barrier. But I, I went up really quite enjoying the language of this story, and I'm looking forward to talking about it a little bit more when we get into the discussion section. Yeah, and, and we're going to bring that up. I think we'll, we'll have to couch the language choices in the story and, and kind of a broader conversation. But I want to talk a little more about this opening here and just the way, you know, an example of the way Tiptree is using language. One of the things we absolutely know about Magadit or are supposed to think about Magadit, I, I want to say Mogadit because saying Magadit uh, reminds me of the Diablo 2 creature sound, the imps, they go like Mogadishu and it just, I don't know, this just is in my head, but <laughs> I like Magadit better. We'll, we'll follow that. Anyway, we get that, uh, that Magadit is really big uh, in part because it's like really obvious Magadit knows it's getting bigger, blah, blah, blah. But then Tiptree puts in this like these poetic flourishes. She talks about Magadi plucking a tree. And this is a really brilliant choice of language. And without too much exposition, it were firmly fixed in the experiences of Magadit. And this also makes us oddly terrified of whatever planet or world that this character inhabits, even if the story is like a honey, I shrunk the kids type of thing, which I don't <laughs> think it is. I just think this would be like a really tough place to settle in if we as Earthlings colonized it. Who knows? Humans might be fat climbers. Oh yeah. And 100% is how I, how I was reading that. I don't actually think that that's true, but here on page one, yeah, I've just, I've read enough science fiction to, to, to feel like there's at least a 50% chance that the, the fat climbers are, are me. I'm a fat climber. <laughs> right. Right. I mean, I also don't think they are, but uh, we'll, we'll, we'll dig into them more a little bit later. All right. Well, Magadit is newly matured. He's what you know, we as humans might call a young adult, and he's venturing out into the world away from his mother for the very first time. Though at the moment of our story, he's actually been out in the world for a year, and he sees his brother Frim. Uh, we just had him in the passage that I read, and although he recognizes that the being in front of him is Frim, Frim is changed. He's a large black being now. Frim is looking down into a valley at something. And when Magadi sees what it is, he is super into it. It's a being very much like them, except a little bit smaller and red. And instantly, Magadit is in love. And this is where we come to understand that this story is at least sometimes a story being told actually to this female monster 
that Magadit loves. And so right now he is narrating the moment that he first saw her and he's narrating it to her. But the thing is, Frim is also in love. And so the two of them fight. And Magadit can't believe that Frim is behaving this way and making such weird sounds. But then he fights back and he also starts making these weird sounds. And then he kind of blanks out and comes to in what he describes as the wreckage of Frim. Okay, so I'm going to bring us to a pausing point here with just a few more comments, just just to say that we as readers are now figuring out what's going on here, right? Magadit is male, and therefore, in his mature form, he is black. The red one is a female, and Magadit and another male have just fought over her. And this is fairly standard stuff that you can watch in your own backyard. Uh, Finch and I've just spent two weeks watching cicada killer wasps do almost exactly this uh, this same thing. <laughs> but Magadit himself is also just figuring this out along with us, right? He saw the red ones before when he was a kid, but he didn't know what they were. And it was just one time and it was very brief. And now that he's killed Frim and is with this red one, uh, he's calling her Lily, by the way. And so now that he is with Lily, he discovers some physiology that he didn't really know about. It turns out that he's uh, got special hands and some kind of goo. It turns out as well that Lily's into it. Yeah, there's a lot of weird stuff in this story that's kind of sexually suggestive in in strange ways, uh, especially when we consider that Magati associates what he's doing as a kind of instinctual response uh, that he also associates with the love that a mother feels for a child. And, and it's this notion of love that becomes more and more complex throughout the story. Uh, but, but, you know, before we really, we're not, we're going to talk about this in the discussion, but I have more to say about this section too, but I want to read a passage here where Magadi understands or learns what Lili's name is. It's a kind of battle cry. Like all the children seem to get their names from the noises they make when they're learning to fight and things like that. Uh, it's a kind of humming that all these weird sentient insects make, I'm, you know, they all make a different one, but anyway, here we go. The old one said it. Red is the color of love. I see you swat at a hopper twice your size. My eyes bulge as you leap after it and go rolling, shrilling, lee lee lee, lee lee lee, in baby wrath. Oh, my mighty hunter, you don't know someone is looking right into your tender little love fur. Oh, yes, palest pink it is, just brushed with rose. My jaws spurt, the world flashes and reels. (laughs) And so this passage raises a kind of very particular question for me. Who is this old one? We've heard about him twice now. And maybe it's because we've been reading lots of At the Mountains of Madness lately, but this has a (laughs) real eldritch ring to it that I can't quite put my finger on. And of course, we're going to get the answer to this question in this story. But we also might feel puzzled by these brothers fighting and Magadhi triumphing over its brother. And Magadit, too, is puzzled when he questions whether or not he should have eaten his brother. Did he defy the plan? You know, and why does Magadit think he should have eaten his brother, who he triumphed over in battle? And it's really good. Magadit is proud of himself for not eating his brother. You know, Magadit certainly feels as though he has fought some battle for independence, of free will over the plan. And this concept of the plan, which is in, in part about the debate of free will versus determinism is something that we will, in, in a specific angle, take up in the discussion. 
I think Tiptree is doing something really interesting here with this unresolvable question and giving us a pretty sound reading of this problem in this story, the really the problem of consciousness versus subjective experience versus determinism. You know, using conscious insects to investigate this problem is a real stroke of genius, in my opinion. And it's right there in the title of the story. We have the word plan twice, right? It's the only <laughs> word that is re- is repeated there. And it'll be a lot of fun to dissect what actually is going on here with, uh, you know, this question of, of free will versus determinism. Also, Brandon, I just have to comment on the, the line, you don't know someone is looking right into your tender little love fur. Um, <laughs> it works. It works for, for Magadit, I guess, but I don't recommend that as a line really in any other context for uh, for anyone. Don't use it at a bar. Or, or anywhere. <laughs> just, just don't. <laughs> you will you will you will get thrown out of a bar and be asked never to come back if you if you tell uh, somebody you're romantically interested in that you are looking at their tender little love fur. Uh, there's a lot of complex ideas in this story. <laughs> <laughs> well the, the the line works for Magadine apparently because now it is time for the love story. So Magadit's goo, it turns out, is a kind of webbing, and he's using it to bind Lily up. Uh, But she's also helping. This is actually part of their love. But most importantly, for us as readers anyway, is that they are telling each other their stories as well. And so at the same time, of course, they are also telling us. And so here is where we get the backstory about Magadit's very first days out in the world. Now, it all starts, of course, with leaving home. And this happens when his mother summons him and and also his many brothers and tells them that winter is coming. Right now it's warm, but soon it's going to be cold and they have to leave before that happens. But also something is going on with her. Mother is furry, except she's not anymore, right? Her fur is falling out and revealing black armor. Also, Magadit notices that she's eating one of his brothers, which she's never done before. Magadit is curious about all of this. He wants to talk with his mother about what the heck is going on here. But the thing is, uh, and, and, and this is clear to us, but not to Magadit, but the, the thing is that she is transforming. She is done being a mother, and now she has an instinct to kill and eat members of her own species, even her own children. She tells Magadit to go, but he keeps chattering, and she says that he reminds her of his father, who also just talked and talked and talked. Magadit doesn't know what a father is, but that doesn't matter right now because his mother has one more thing to tell him. The winters are growing longer. And this is something that she learned from Magadit's father. And it seems like an important warning about something. But what that is, she doesn't know. So now we come to the year that Magadit spends alone in the world, hunting and learning. He encounters an old man. I mean, it's, you know, an old male of his species, but he's an old wise one archetype is what I mean here. And he and Magadi talk about how the plan, and as you mentioned earlier, Brandon, this is, you know, a high concept here in this story. And so plan here is with a capital P. The plan requires them to spend the summer running around, and then they have to go to the caves of winter. Also, the old man tells Magadit that red is the color of love, though up to this point, Magadit had thought that the color of love was gold, because gold was the color of his mother's fur. But they also talk about winter. And Magadit tells the old man about the winters growing longer, which really freaks the old man out. But what can they do? And what we glean here is that it's only during the warm period that this species, or at least the males of this species, have 
intelligence. It's only during this warm period that they can learn and use language to communicate with each other. And the idea that the warm period is shrinking horrifies the old man, who already suspects that the warm period used to be longer, and they used to have more time to be themselves, to be sentient, before the rest of the plan would activate. And speaking of the plan, the old man also tells Magadit that part of the plan is that he's going to hang out in the caves of winter, waiting, and also eating another black one, another male. And Magadit does not want to do that. He does not want to eat one of his own kind. And he is determined at this point to overcome the plan, to resist it. But when the time comes, he, he kills the old man and drags him to the cave to eat him. And the old man didn't even resist because... It is the plan, after all. I really want to highlight here the fact that Magadit has no concept of fatherhood. Something happens to fathers that makes their existence a question for the children. This is pretty important to the story. We've already mentioned the plan, but Magadit often wonders if the plan also guides the fat climbers, which we've talked about. You know, they must be a simian type of creature. And uh, the insects of Magadit's species are big enough to feed off of them just for a little while. Like they're clearly more food for children or young adults. Like once they get big enough, the insect creatures, you know, they're not, they have to eat a ton of them to get their caloric intake. And Magadit knows that he has to eat to grow and to stay alive, but his heart is full of love. And he thinks that this is going to make a big difference, that this love that he feels will free him in a sense from the plan and Magadi even struggles to understand the plan, even as it's explained to him by the Old One. It's kind of wild here to see that the Old One actually stops Magadit, who's out kind of romping around, in order to tell Magadit his tale. And he does this pretty much so that he can have Magadit in the cave with him, so that he can be eaten. And I want to read what the Old One says of the plan here, just to give us a, a kind of a clearer picture of what's going on. In us moving us in all things necessary for life. You have seen. When the baby is golden, the mother cherishes it all winter long. But when it turns red or black, she drives it away. Black is to kill. Even a mother, even her own baby. She cannot defy the plan. So, I don't know. We really get the sense that the old one knows what he's in for here and that what he wants is to serve the plan. And this is uh, the kind of a source of, of, of wisdom here. This is an aspect of wisdom. There's a, a fatherly aspect to the old one. And whether or not he is Magadit's true, you know, like biological father, I don't think that's really a question in the text. I can imagine a reader maybe thinking that or wanting that to be the case. It's probably not the case. But whether or not that's the case, it's really separate from the fact that what we are actually looking at here is a standard fantasy trope of the young provincial boy finding the old wise one in or near a cave who will give him guidance and information that he is just too immature to understand. But the information and the guidance will come into play in the penultimate moment of the adventure. And I really love the way that Tiptree is playing with the standard adventure quest, hero quest trope in this story in order to maybe have us question the concepts of, of destiny or fate. Yeah, I mean, Tiptree here in this story, at least, is the, uh, the Joseph Campbell for insects. 
<laughs> right. <laughs> that's that's one way to that's, that's the easiest <laughs> way into the story, I think. <laughs> okay, so now we're back in the present where Magadid and Lily are in a cave. It's the cave of winter. But Magadi does not want to experience winter because he knows that he is going to lose himself then. And so what he wants to do is fight the plan. And Lily is with him in this. They're, they're going to fight the plan together. But it may be that they also just don't really understand what the plan is. Lily thinks that they will all lose themselves in the winter. And that part of the plan is that Magadit will lose himself first because he has to go out of the cave. He's got to leave the cave in order to hunt. And therefore, he's going to experience the cold. And then when he's lost himself, he's going to drag Lily out there too in order to go further up into the cold. And so they devise a plan to fight against that. And what they're going to do is Magadit is going to wall Lily up with his webbing and he's is going to just go hunt and hunt and hunt so that they can have a massive food supply ready to go. And then he won't have to go outside and hunt when it gets cold. And he's going to keep a bunch of the food alive in the webbing so that it will stay fresh. It's all very clever. And during this time, their love grows and Lily starts to undergo a physiological change. She's growing mother fur. Also, they start mating. This is a new phase in their relationship. And they're really confident at this point that they have beaten the plan. So Magadid is hunting, he's binding the creatures up, and then every night they mate. And then after they mate, Magadid binds Lily up too. Though why is not exactly clear. And and I guess they're they're waiting until the last minute to build the wall that will keep Magadid from being able to get to Lily and drag her out of the cave. And Lily is getting nervous about the changing season. She thinks they're cutting it a little bit too close, and she has a sense that Magadit should stop unbinding her at night so that they can mate. But he can't help it. Just one last time. And this time, he completely unwraps her, and he sees that she's grown huge, and also that she's got armor now that she didn't used to have. Also, she has a hunting limb, and she grabs him with it and then clamps her jaws on him. And this is the end of the story. Magadit is still alive, but he's dying. And he's dying because their babies have been born. They are swelling through Lily's mother fur, and they are eating him alive. This is what he's for. This has been the plan the whole time. He can't talk now, but he thinks, and that's the story that we've been reading. He wants Lily to remember him, to tell their children about him, and, and also about their love, and also to warn them about the growing winters. I've always wondered what fathers are for, and, and now, now I you know, know. <laughs> they're, they're there to be sacrificed entirely. <laughs> and you know, what's what's really ironic about the end of this story is that Magadi thinks of himself as a mother throughout this story, so much so that there's actually some gender confusion, and I, we really underplayed that in the recap. Magadi really identifies with a mother and his love for Lily, and. As the story progresses, there's kind of more and more uh, sexual innuendo around the way that Makati thinks of Lily or her fur or, you know, we talked a little bit about that. And Makati wants to subvert the plan out of these different forms of love that he's expressing. But it turns out the plan has nothing to do with him and everything to do with perpetuating the species 
And that love is an illusion that allows him to sacrifice himself in all these ways to stock food for the winter. Uh, and his justification is out of, out of a sense of romantic love and also a sort of protective love that a mother might feel for their child. And this all leads to his death so that his children can live. Magadi doesn't remember his father or have a concept of his father because he probably ate him when he was born. <laughs> and all of this mother stuff is really, as I said, it's a misdirection. And the mothers also eat their young, but they maybe don't want to. And so I wonder if there's some cynicism in this story about parenthood. And <laughs> that's something we can talk <laughs> about uh, if you want to. But what I want to take up first in the discussion is the concept of the plan here and what Tiptree is doing with it. Because I think that by talking about this, we'll be able to talk about the style and language choices and understand why those choices were made and just how they serve the telling of the story. So I guess the first question I really want to ask you, Glenn, is how did you conceptualize the concept of the plan in this story? Did you feel uh, you know, that this was a story expressing something about biological determinism, which is the idea that our gen genetic makeup and biological needs is what determines our fate? Or did you have something else in mind entirely? I really enjoyed this part of the story because I'm bringing so much baggage <laughs> to reading this story. I may say baggage, <laughs> but really what I mean is experience. I've read an awful lot of speculative fiction. And so, although I'm pretty sure as I'm reading along, I'm pretty sure that the plan here is just their word for the instincts that they're feeling. And they're thinking that maybe we don't want to behave that way, right? They're trying to overcome those instincts. But because I've read an awful lot of speculative fiction, I'm also having to wonder if the plan is not actually a real plan that's been programmed into them somehow. And, you know, and as we go, we're still trying to figure out who and, and, and what these beings even are. And although they very much feel like you know, bug monsters, essentially. There's a, were a few moments where I thought maybe they're, maybe these are actually some kind of robot or something like that. Or even if they're not, they're, they're some kind of genetically engineered being or something like that. But in the end, I don't think that any of that is true. I simply think that these are a, a, another, a, a species of creature and that what they're calling the plan is an instinctive social organization that they have that is really more or less similar to what we see insects and, and, and spiders as well doing out in, in the wild of our own backyards. Right. And, and I mean, we'll, we'll kind of dig into this a little bit more in, in different ways. But the idea here is that there's no such thing as free will. And so that everything we do, including our drives uh, and instincts, I say we, we'll talk about whether or not there's a, like a human element <laughs> to this, if this is a, an analogous uh, story that's an analog or just imagining a thought experiment about insects. But, you know, whether or not anything that we do is a part of anything other than perpetuating our own species. And so with that in mind, I, I wonder if you ever felt like in this story, the way that Tiptree was telling it, did you ever feel like Magadit's love would ever triumph over the plan? Did you, were you shocked by the ending? I mean, the the ending is kind of predicted by the title, but, um, or did you really think that, that these two kids were going to make it? Well, you've totally nailed it there, right? Which is that reading the story, I definitely... Well, I definitely wanted them to win. I wanted them to escape the plan. I mean, you, you know exactly what's coming if you 
you know, are into bugs. I'm into bugs. Uh, one of the first dates that Elizabeth and I went on was to an insectarium. And we really do just hang out in the backyard with Finch and watch bugs and collect bugs a lot. So I knew what was going on here. I was like, this, this is bug behavior. This is, this is what's going to happen here. I'm seeing this on the wall. But I was rooting for them and I wanted it, wanted it to work out. But then you remember... No, no, no. The title tells me exactly how this story is going to end. And I love the title of this story. I think it's a beautiful title. But I think that that's a weakness in the title is that it does give the the, the ending away there. Although maybe that's the intended purpose. Yeah, I think it is the intended purpose. And I think one thing that Tip Tree is doing is trying to demonstrate maybe to us as readers that even our love for one another is uh, serving some uh, maybe sort of gross or cynical naturalistic process. And, and so I really wonder what you think Tiptree is doing by highlighting especially these two different forms of love, the love a parent has for its child uh, and romantic love in this story, especially in relationship to the plan. Why is it that we feel in stories that we're told that love is a sort of a, a special exception to the, to the rules? I really enjoyed this story as a, a love story. I mean, there's a real tragic element, as we've said. This is clear to us from the the title, also because we've read stories before. But, but this feels kind of like a like you know, it's Romeo and Juliet, except it's about bug monsters, uh, and also maybe there's no like family drama, right? But but there's definitely a kind of star-crossed lovers feel hanging over us, or dread hanging over this entire story that really makes me sympathize with these characters and, and root for them and 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 cheer for them, even as I know that that is going to be futile here. But I think what you're driving at, Brandon, as well, is that there's also an element here to this story where we as readers have to wonder if love is the plan, which is to say, if love is happening because of the instinctive need to reproduce that this species feels, is what these two characters are are feeling, is what they are doing really actually love at all? And then, of course, by extension, we have to ask this question about ourselves. Right. Is love just like a material result of the brain flooding with oxytocin or other, <laughs> or other hormones or chemicals? Um, and and we'll, we'll hone in on this just in a little bit, probably to wrap up our uh, discussion. But this is a, a fascinating question to me. This is something that I think a lot about in terms of even the way we talk about history, which this story is a, maybe it's a kind of biography, which is a sort of history. Uh, when we think about, you know, even war movies or things like that, where like the main character, uh, you, you know, the soldier who's going to make it is in love. He's got a girl waiting for him. And yet you can go and read dozens of hundreds of love letters written from the trenches in, in Paris in World War One of young men to their sweethearts at home and, and just love doesn't exempt them from the worst parts of life. And and we often, you know, feel when we're in love or especially look to love stories. Part of the escapism of that type of story is that we become exempt from the mundane indignities and tragedies of life because we're in love and we're owed something for having that feeling. It's a very complex sort of cultural <laughs> issue. Uh, but I like what Tiptree's pointing out here. And, and I think we'll, we'll wrap up the discussion by really digging into that. Uh, so I just want to tease that for you, Glenn, so you can start thinking about it. <laughs> right. Well, part of how this works, I mean, in fact, really how this works here in this story is that 
Magadit and Lily, you know, think that they are something exceptional, right? That you know, they're the only people who have ever felt this way and the only people who've ever thought we can overcome the plan. But of course, it turns out every single one of them has always thought this. And in fact, that's the plan. That getting that feeling and trying to subvert the plan is actually how the plan is is working. And I uh, I imagine this is how every adult, uh, every middle-aged adult has felt dealing with teenagers. <laughs> I'm sure that's absolutely true. I haven't been around teenagers in a long time, but <laughs> I remember being one and I remember feeling just like, you know, anything is possible because I'm in love. And you kind of feel like you're owed something too when you're in like a crush state. There's a, a sense of obligation from the other person that's totally unfounded. It's absolutely <laughs> nuts. And it's really fun to think about once you're out of that mode a little bit. But I want to ask, uh, kind of return to the bigger picture here and ask why Tiptree decided to use these weird insect monsters that eat the fat climbers. And Magadi is conscious enough. Uh, or has a certain degree of consciousness uh, that allows him to ask the question of like, do fat climbers also follow a plan? But why use these types of creatures to play with this idea of biological determinism in particular, of the way that love makes us feel like we're in our own story instead of part of a bigger story that we're participating in and maybe not the main character of? Um, why use these types of animals and insects to tell the story instead of a person who discovers some horrible truth about their feelings serving something they don't intend. Well, part of the belief that so many of us have about ourselves is that although we are a, a type of animal, we are different than animals and better than animals. And we want very much to believe that our emotions are emotions and not just a bunch of chemicals mixing together in order to further a plan, right? And so if you start telling a story about humans from this perspective, right, using this type of language with it, uh, readers, uh, you know, a good chunk of readers are going to bristle against that and just dismiss the story as as nonsense, right? We're going to feel bad about the, the thing that Tiptree is trying to argue. And I do think that Tiptree is trying to say that this is us, right? That, in fact, Magadid and Lily are people, right? They're they're humans and these are their stand-ins for humans here. But because she's using speculative fiction here to tell an analogy essentially, an analogous story essentially, right? That gives us a way in. It's a way for us to calmly reflect on the issues that she's raising or the questions that she's asking without feeling defensive about it. Well, one thought experiment that you'll see in, you know, neurology or philosophy of mind and maybe has even been tested in some occasions is the way that we can be led to take actions that maybe go against our nature or our better instincts or our character. And then we'll come up with reasons for why we did it. That's, you know, there's confabulation, right? And this story is almost an exercise in confabulation. And it's a kind of horror story on that level that as Magdi is being eaten alive, He's coming up with reasons why this had to be the case and why his emotions were his own and why he still has free will and all these other things that are really 
not about him at all. And so this this story, I think, could leave many readers unsettled as they consider uh, the idea that maybe we too could be controlled in such way by the right combination of chemicals or the right series of words that convince us of something or even, uh, I don't know, brain implants that operate uh, to change our brain patterns or anything along these lines where we wouldn't feel like we're being controlled because our sense of self-possession is so strong. And I think that Tiptree does an amazing job of kind of subtly showing us the horror of this type of thought experiment. Uh, we've, we have been so far talking about the plan in this story as really being synonymous with uh, with instinctive behavior that these, these beings, these creatures, these uh, uh, bug monsters, as I've been calling them, are feeling. And hey, look, you know, humans do have these things too. We absolutely do. It'd be foolish to deny those. But I think one of the ways the Tiptree story uh, really quite works is that because she's not telling a story uh, about humans, right? But it's telling a story that's a kind of, you know, funhouse mirror for us to look in and, and think about ourselves, that we can think about that specifically. We can think about the plan as instinct and think about how our lives, our societies are determined by instinct or not. And perhaps in ways, and perhaps even not determined by instinct in ways that are actually detrimental. That's something we could think about. But we also could think about the other forces that are acting in our life, the other things that could actually be plants besides just instinct, things like uh, marketing, right? Like consumerism and so on. The things that are showing us what we're supposed to do as we grow up, as we leave adolescence and go out to become adults. How are we supposed to behave? What are we supposed to do? What's the thing everyone else is going to be doing? And should I be doing that too, right? It doesn't have to just be instinct. There are a lot of forces in our lives, in our world that are telling us that. There are a lot of plans out there. Yeah. I had a, I had a philosophy professor who, uh, his best way of kind of explaining those forces, and this has stuck with me for you know a decade now, was uh, nobody's born wanting a stuffed crust pizza. <laughs> you, know, you, you have to be taught to want that. You know, I don't know, man. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's let's kind of use what you were talking about to to shift into a bit of the craft discussion here um, to think about. Well, first of all, I would just want to ask you what you make of the choices that Tiptree made in telling this story. So why use this type of language? Why use, uh, we talked about why use these types of creatures, but really why write the story, the story in this kind of disjointed language that kind of makes strange our own language? In other words, how does the language serve these elements of the story? Well, as you say, the the language serves to make the world strange, to make these beings strange, right? To make Magadine and Lily seem strange, seem not human to us. And if part of what Tiptree is trying to do is to get us to not be defensive and, and to think about the extent to which our lives are shaped by, if not necessarily determined by, a plan, whether that's instinct or or some other things or many plans that are out there shaping our lives, constricting the choices and that we have and so on, or trying to at any rate. Right? If she wants us to be open to thinking about that without feeling defensive, the stranger that she can make these beings, then the easier that is. And so I think it serves that purpose very well. I also think, though, that one of the things Tiptree is doing here is actually just having some fun thinking about how another species might 
operate. And she really is taking insects or, or, or spiders here as a, a, a kind of model here and is wondering, you know, what does their world look like? What do their lives look like to them? And is also then trying to think about how they might, you know, form thoughts and so on, which of course is not something we can ever actually do. But this is, I think, a, a really excellent attempt at doing exactly that. And it's a lot of fun. Yeah, it is. It is a lot of fun once you get into it and then get into the rhythm of it. I mean, I think Tiptree really uses uh, poetic techniques like rhyme, uh, meter, a uh, certain type of flow in order to communicate the story to us in a way that is both strange, but also compelling uh, to read. And I think that that's a brilliant choice. I mean, this is a story that is that is another masterpiece of of craft. And uh, I, I'm really impressed by by what she's pulled off here. But there's another element to the story, maybe two, well, really just one more element that I want to talk about here in terms of craft. So this is a love story, uh, which is a genre of storytelling, but it's also got some generic quest elements to it as well. You know, especially with the sort of hero's journey aspect we feel in the story, the guise of the old one, you know, who's this wise person who knows about the winter, even though probably it seems like most of the men only live one year. It's questionable how anyone knows the winter's getting longer, except it kind of comes through the grapevine. And uh, this is a kind of part of the plan as well that gets people into the cave so that they can mate and continue the species. But what is the reason that you think Tiptree used these tropey elements of you know the hero's journey or quest in this story? What is the value of using those in this type of story? It works so well subconsciously, right? I mean, this is a story where Tiptree wants us to identify with Magadit, to empathize with him, and to sympathize with him. And there are a lot of tricks that she's using to, to do exactly that. One of them is to tell us this familiar story, to tell us a story that, uh, well, not in 1973, but, you know, you and I, at least, uh, just, just feels like Luke Skywalker. It's Luke Skywalker, right? You know, that, that that's... That's what's happening here. It's just a hero's journey. We've read the hero's journey a lot. Yeah, maybe it's Harry Potter, right? But it's these journeys it has these archetypes. It hits all the tropes. And so what that tells us subconsciously is that Magadit is the hero. Magadit is the protagonist. Magadit is someone we should be rooting for to overcome these obstacles. It also gives us the expectation that he's going to, which I think works then when uh, uh, he doesn't, right? When, when it turns out that, no, no, the plan is uh, that you don't overcome the obstacles and the plan wins. Yeah, exactly. And and that kind of leads me to my final question here. Do you read this story as being like cynical about the way love functions for us in our own lives, where it makes us feel like we're the main character in a story for a little while? Is this a really cynical story? Or do you have another reading of what Tiptree's aiming at here? So I do think it's a cynical story, but I want to present an alternative reading before I talk about why I think it's a cynical story. I, I really want this to be a positive story here. I really want this to be a story about how even though Magadit ends up doing exactly what the plan wants him to do, right? What his instinctive drive is, his love for Lily is genuine. It is it is real. And he has learned about love because his mother loved him. His mother cared for him. And I really felt those emotions, the way that Magadit is narrating this story. I really bought into that. And I want to read Magadit's death at the end as 
a, a genuine sacrifice as an act of love, another act of love to his children, even though it's not one that he made consciously. He didn't know that this was happening. I want to read the ending of this story thinking that now that Magadit knows that this is happening, that his children are eating him because Lily has uh, used her hunting claw to, to paralyze him, to trap him here, to serve as food for their children. I want to believe that Magadit is cool with that. That he thinks, yeah, this is this is what I'm for, and that if I had been asked to do this willingly, I would have. I, I want to leave the story feeling that way. Yeah, I, I really do, too. It's not how I read the story either. But there <laughs> right. is one way of reading this story, which, as you described, is about how regardless of some bigger picture that we can't understand, regardless of whether or not that thing exists and is determining our actions and our fates and our destinies for us. Our subjectivity, our ability to choose is what ennobles us and gives us dignity, even if it's just, even if we can describe it as just a series of chemicals playing in the brain, right? So th this is like a, a problem I personally have with like the material reduction attitude of philosophy of mind, where if we can describe things materially, um, then there's some sort of uh, reduction. That's the wrong word to use there. There's some sort of uh, ignoble element of that, that once we figure something out, it's disenchanted and we have to be cynical about it. I much prefer the kind of existential or even absurdist approach where maybe it doesn't matter what choices we make. Maybe it doesn't matter whether somebody's guiding them or not. I mean, it matters if we're being controlled by like brain implants or something <laughs> like that uh, or manipulated by, uh, you, you know, being given chemicals or something along those lines. But our freedom is rooted in our belief of freedom. And that is uh, a dignifying element of the of human striving and the human spirit. And so, yeah, that's not what Tiptree has in mind, I think. <laughs> but that is one way you could approach uh, the ending of this story. Right. I think to think about what is actually going on in this story, the cynical view of this story that clearly you and I both think is actually what Tiptree has in mind here. We really need to think about Tiptree as, in fact, actually Alice Sheldon. Sheldon had an incredibly tragic death. She suffered from depression and she wound up uh, committing suicide. Uh, and this is actually after she shot her husband. It was a murder-suicide, an incredibly tragic uh, death here. And I think we can see in this story, and that's something that happened about 15 years, I guess, after, after she had written this story. And I think knowing that about Sheldon, I think there are a lot of things that we can see in this story uh, about feeling trapped by a, a number of things. Yeah. I mean, Sheldon didn't suffer from like the blues, right? <laughs> she didn't have a hard, like, it wasn't like she had a hard time getting up and being motivated to work. And, uh, she really questioned, uh, existence. I think itself, she, her depression, you know, that, that extreme sort of clinical depression, um, controlled her. And she was aware of the way that brain states that she couldn't escape controlled her actions in the world. And you're right to, to point out that that's a feeling of being 
trapped. And so maybe us knowing some of the history of Alice Sheldon's life uh, lends us to read this in a cynical sort of way. And she's using love here and saying, how is love any different? This series sets of emotions that control us. How is that any different than my depression? And so she's maybe questioning the function of all of it. And what is it serving? Is it just to have kids so you can sacrifice your life for them so they can grow up and do the same thing? I mean, if you've ever laid awake at night having this spiral of thoughts, you'll, you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. And I think that, that it's that sort of knowledge that lends us to, to really, as I said, read this story in that, in that cynical way rather, rather than a you know, uh, ennobling way that's about the freedom and striving of the spirit in the face of these things. What do you do if you can't leave the winter cave, you know? And I think um, it's an absolutely tragic way to, to read this story in, in light of Sheldon's life. Uh, but I, I can totally understand Sheldon as Tiptree, the kind of gender confusion here in the story, uh, which I, you know, I'm not sure if that was uh, anything that she dealt with in her life personally, it's just an interesting aspect of the story, these personas that she played with, um, really struggling with, with the idea of a plan. Are we just repeating the same thing over and over again and confusing ourselves about emotions so that our kids can grow up and do the same thing that we just did? And what's it for? Uh, that's not a great note to end the podcast on, Glenn. I hope you have something happy to say to take us out of here. <laughs> Well, I did save, in fact, in my back pocket, a sort of lighthearted angle uh, for a sort of lighthearted question about this story. And it's really just about the the speculative element of the story, which is to, you know, think about, are we the fat climbers, <laughs> by which I really mean, where and when is this story taking place? I think you indicated earlier, Brandon, that maybe your assumption is that we're on another planet and that these are just the creatures that live on this other planet. But I actually read this story with the real feeling that this is earth in the future. Yeah, that, that could totally be the case as well, or earth in the deep, deep past. Uh, any, anything could be possible here. I just know that it's not a place I want to live as a human <laughs> being, you know, because I think I'd be a fat climber and I don't want to be a fat climber. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. Because although I don't think there are any actual human beings in this world, the fat climbers are either something we've evolved into or they're the thing that's going to evolve into us. So, yeah, we would be the fat climbers. The fat climbers are us. Right. Not the insects. So uh, if you want to find a real happy way to tell this story, tell it from the perspective of a fat climber who is escaping death and having a wonderful adventure all its own. Oh, I would totally read that story. I hope someone will write that. <laughs> yeah, maybe you and I should do that. To, but uh, that's going to do it for this episode today. I'm Brandon Buddha. And I'm Glenn McDorman. As always, you can find us and our other creative projects at claytemplemedia.com. This story was really, really interesting to read. It was a lot of fun to read, even if our discussion had to go to some dark places here and thinking about Alice Sheldon's life. I'm so glad to have read this story. I have not read really any Tip Tree before. And so this was really, really exciting for me. And I'm just so grateful for the opportunity. So thank you again. Yeah, thank you so much. I mean, this this story would fit perfectly if you're an instructor of a kind of philosophy instructor. This story would be a great fit for a philosophy of mind course, I think. There's a lot of fruit that we left on the tree here. Thank you so much. This was a real treat to read.
And if other listeners would like to commission an episode, we would love to do that. You can do that by visiting the website. You can contact us via email, which is claytemplemedia at gmail.com. You can find us on Twitter or Reddit as well. And if you're a Patreon supporter, you get a discount on commissions and even free episodes at some levels. And hey, Patreon's got a messaging system that's a great place to write to us as well. We really do love doing these. So if there is a story that you would like to hear us talk about, an author you'd like to introduce us to, we hope you'll contact us and get us going on that. So next time, we'll be back with an episode covering something we don't know yet during these commissioned episodes. We generally record them about a year ahead of time, a year before we air them for the public audience. And so at this point, we just don't know what our Patreon supporters have voted to come next on Elder Sign. But if you are someone who likes reading along with us, you can find out what is next by checking out the Elder Sign page at claytemplemedia.com. And until next time, we greet you and say farewell. <laughs>